Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever, episode 302. Before we start, I'd like to thank Freethinker215 for becoming a Patreon supporter. Thank you, my friend. It is greatly appreciated. If anyone else would like to help out, you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month, and that gives you access to all the Patreon bonus content, my short story readings, episodes of the Not-So-Secret Show, and whatever else I feel like putting up there. Speaking of that, I'm going to try to record and publish some new bonus content this weekend. The last thing I put up there was my reading of H.P. Lovecraft's The Silver Key. Okay, onwards. So, first up, a brief correction or clarification. So, I recently released that little news bite episode entitled Cephalopods on Ecstasy, where I discuss a research project where scientists dosed octopuses with MDMA. And I kept joking throughout the show how when it comes to the plural form of octopus, I just can't get used to saying octopuses. And that's the form everyone seemed to be using while I was researching the story. I went on to state how, me personally, I prefer octopi. Well, it seems to be the case that octopuses, not octopi, is the correct plural form. And depending on who you ask or what source you go to, octopi may or may not be deemed an acceptable alternative. The crux seems to be that, etymologically speaking, octopus is Greek, octo meaning eight, and pus meaning foot. Like King Oedipus from the Sophocles plays. I believe his name meant swollen foot. And pluralizing words with that long I sound suffix is traditionally used in Latin, not Greek. I did actually look all this up shortly after releasing that episode, and you guys know what stickler I can be when it comes to making sure I correct things that I get wrong. Multiple times in the past, I've actually pulled episodes, edited out whatever it was I got factually wrong, re-recorded the section, and then re-uploaded them. But this time I was like, eh, octopi versus octopuses. That can wait till the next episode. <laughs> I thought one particular viewer on YouTube did a good job of explaining things, so I'll read his comment now. So this is Ray Arius, or Arius. I think uh, one of those is the proper pronunciation. <laughs> and he says, As one of the articles you had pulled up said, and, and that's true, I may not have re-edited the audio version, but I did include a, a kind of article that explained the grammar behind the whole thing in the YouTube version. I had like a a screenshot I included. But to continue, as one of the articles you had pulled up said, octopus is a Greek word, and as such, its Greek plural is octopodes. Yet he goes on to say, pronounced as octopodes or octopodes. But if that is too much of a mouthful, the default English plural of octopuses can be used instead. However, octopi was never and is still not the correct plural for octopus. Sorry. And I'll give Ray the benefit of the doubt that he wasn't trying to be too sarcastic with the sorry at the end. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, so... um. This is probably going to be a pretty eclectic episode. I have a number of little subjects and news stories I wanted to touch on. Firstly, my friend Crocoduck and I had an interesting conversation last night via direct message on Twitter. He was telling me how he had uh, one of his questions read on another podcast. Cheating on the weekend out with another podcast, Crocoduck. Just kidding. I actually like that there's this sense of community among secular podcasters. 
And if it wasn't for my listeners, there'd probably be a lot of good podcasts that I now enjoy that I otherwise never would have heard of. But anyway, I believe the name of the podcast was the Doubts Allowed podcast. And Crocoduck's question was, are there any good arguments for the Christian God? Or something to that effect, with the emphasis on are there any quote-unquote good arguments. Believers and apologists have plenty of arguments. But, you know, are there any that might be strong enough or have enough merit to even give a skeptic pause? And I really like that question. It reminded me of this kind of debate trend you may have heard of, referred to as steel manning. Basically the opposite of straw manning, where instead of putting words in your opponent's mouth or trying to argue against a claim they didn't make, you take the more charitable approach of trying to strengthen or shore up their argument. And a good example of this was on display, in my opinion, recently at the beginning of one or more of those long-awaited clashes between... Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris. At the beginning of the debate, they were asked to sum up each other's arguments or worldviews in a kind of fair, charitable, and convincing way. And these are two men with two very different worldviews, at least on subjects like quote-unquote truth and religion. So it was very interesting to hear them do their best to try to couch one another's worldviews in a flattering light. And so Crocoduck's question really inspired me to put on the old thinking cap, and it helped me to broach a subject that I often kind of half-consciously sense hanging around in the shadowy periphery of my mind, but that I perhaps don't confront enough. I'm always giving my reasons why I don't consider myself a Christian, why I don't believe, but are there any good reasons for believing? And I thought if I was going to steal man the Christian position, what reasons or arguments would I come up with? And so if I step back and look at the situation, I find myself saying, okay, you have this very successful religion that's been around for roughly two millennia that in fairness does make some pretty extraordinary claims that 2,000 years ago there was someone who walked on water, healed the disease, the blind, the crippled, etc. with the laying on of hands, raised the dead, and even rose from the dead himself. Are there any good reasons for believing that this may have actually been true? And as I said the Crocoduck, I think for me, the two things that on some level probably give me a little pause are the initial rapid growth of Christianity, or what experts or scholars would refer to as the Jesus movement, and the apparent historicity of key figures in the early church who supposedly knew Jesus, like James, who along with Jude, Simon, and Joseph may have actually been the biological brother or half-brother of Jesus, and of course also Simon Peter, simply Peter meaning the rock, one of the most prominent of the apostles who went on to become what was essentially the first bishop or Pope of Rome. And so I think things like that, the knowledge that this movement really took off and that some key figures involved may have actually known or even been related to the central figure, can tempt you to want to kind of go, huh, I wonder if maybe something really did happen. But Crocoduck had a great response. Hopefully he doesn't mind me reading a bit of our exchange. Okay, so here I say, 
I sometimes think of how quickly Christianity or the Jesus movement grew in popularity and the supposed historicity of people that actually knew Jesus like Peter and James or the fervor and conversion of Paul. But when I step back and look again, all that stuff can be logically countered. There have been many popular cults and religious movements and the historicity of people like Peter or James or the conversion of Paul don't equate to evidence of a physical resurrection or that anything supernatural or divine took place. And so Crocoduck responds, there's some sociologist that Airman, he's talking about Bart Airman there, talks about who's looked at the growth of Christianity in the first few centuries and concluded that the growth of Christianity is pretty comparable to that of Mormons or the Mormons. And I respond, that's a good point. Mormonism did catch on pretty quick, and we know Smith was peddling a steaming pile of horseshit. Smiley emoticon. And so that was just a portion of our conversation, but there you have it. And I think another interesting kind of argument that examples of which at first blush may seem to have some merit is the so-called argument from embarrassment. For example, an apologist might argue, why would someone make up the embarrassing fact that the Messiah, who was supposed to be a conquering warrior king, died physically defeated, nailed to a cross, the shameful, ignoble death of a condemned criminal? And like I said, that sounds like a pretty good argument at first blush, but when you stop and really think about it, it could be something as simple as that. Let's say Jesus was a historical figure. I kind of straddle the fence, or I'm kind of agnostic on the historicity of Jesus, but let's say he did exist, and this charismatic leader of this budding religious movement, this person whose followers may have viewed him as the Messiah, instead of triumphantly ushering in the kingdom of God, he suddenly meets his end tortured and nailed to a cross like so many others who had fallen beneath the heel of the empire then his followers would be left to try to make sense of his tragic end. Now, I guess if you're a mythicist, someone who doesn't actually believe Jesus existed, then this explanation doesn't really work, and you'd probably just tend to explain the crucifixion as just another example of the dying and rising God motif. But let's move on to the next topic. We've been on that one for a while. Okay, so next I wanted to read from a Patheos article. I posted a link to this one on the Weekend Out Facebook page days ago, and I have to admit I only glanced over it, but the title alone cracked me up and I felt like I had to share it, so I thought, uh, why not read through it now? Okay, so once again, this is from Patheos, and it's on the Friendly Atheist channel, and it's actually by Hemant Mehta himself, and <laughs> this is the title that kind of cracked me up. Satanist sues Chicago for religious discrimination over his pet pig, Borfamet. So yes, Borfamet, like a take on Baphomet. Which reminds me, I still have to do that uh, documentary episode on Baphomet. It's a subject I've been absolutely fascinated with for a very long time. And I know now that it's risen in popularity because of its prominent use as a symbol by the Satanic Temple. So uh, maybe I'll make it this year's Halloween special. Hey, Halloween's, what, only about four weeks away, so uh, I better get cracking. But anyway, I'll get back to the article, and this is dated September 23rd. 
The last time we heard from Kenneth Mayle, I think it is, M-A-Y-L-E, the Satanist from Chicago had just lost an appeals court challenge to take In God We Trust off our money. He's currently weighing an appeal to the Supreme Court on that matter. Now he's filing two lawsuits for radically different reasons. They involve a satanic lust home. <laughs> And just to let you know, I haven't prepared any notes ahead of time for this part of the show, so this is all off the cuff. Um, a satanic lust home. That, that does sound intriguing. A guinea hog named Chief Wiggum, a.k.a. Borfamet. <laughs> the, the sex magic rituals inspired by Alistair, uh, a lot of people say Crowley, I believe the proper pronunciation is Crowley, who founded the religion of Thelema, and laws involving emotional support animals. According to the first complaint, city officials want to inspect Mail's property to ensure it's meeting all the local requirements. That wouldn't be a problem except that Mail says the officials missed their quote-unquote appointed day and time for the inspection, and he has since moved forward with turning his house into a sacred space. He now wants to make sure the officials don't intrude on his property or punish him for not being able to do so. Because that might kill his Satanist mojo. I kid you not, Hemant Mehta adds. And so this must be from a, a letter or a message from either Mail himself or a representative, I guess. The house has now been appropriately defiled for purposes of making it a sacred space where plaintiff may practice his faith and conduct his rituals, alone with Chief Wiggum and with other people. Plaintiff is opposed to permitting any city inspector on the premises. Any intrusion by the city on the property will defile plaintiff's sacred space, interrupt the rituals and practices, and risk a leak of religious secrets the property contains and used. For example, an inspector may not know a quote-unquote safe word on the premise and run risk of non-consensual bodily harm within the walls of the building. The safe word is not for the ears of the inspector, and everyone inside the walls of the house must know the quote-unquote safe word to ensure consent. Many other examples exist, however, must remain secret to the peers of plaintiff. Does the city believe in telling a master mason they do not know how to build a stone staircase of sufficient quality for use by their own family? Such an inspection would violate plaintiff's religious liberty, guaranteed to him under the First and Fourteenth Amendments to the U.S. Constitution and the Constitution of the State of Illinois. And I think this is where uh, Hemant Mehta's commentary continues. God bless the American legal system. Mail is essentially saying this home, his property, is a sacred space and any intrusion upon it would violate his religious freedom, including his... <clears throat> it looks like uh, there's a bit of a snafu here. It's probably supposed to say including his right to perform, but it looks like the word is missing. I'll just say including his right to perform quote-unquote satanic lust rituals. Don't hold your breath waiting for the Values Voter Summit crowd to defend this one. If you're ever feeling sad, just remember that somewhere an intrepid reporter is Googling what kind of sex magic involves a guinea hog and quote-unquote other people. That's not Mail's only new lawsuit. On the same day he filed that one, he also filed one against the city of Chicago and Cook County Animal Control and Attorney General Jeff Sessions 
and the Illinois Department of Natural Resources in the Chicago Park Districts, saying that everyone has discriminated against him in part because Chief Wiggum isn't designated an emotional support animal. And once again, Maida says, I kid you not, since adopting Chief Wiggum as a piglet, plaintiff has raised him to perform tasks of a service animal, provide emotional support, and has included him in his religious practices. Chief Wiggum provides plaintiff massage therapy on his hands and other body areas, helping reduce the effect, including anxiety and depression. The biking and display of Chief Wiggum, and here's a typo, but looks like they're saying is basically a, a typo from the source and not Patheos. I think they're trying to say Chief Wiggum something other things to symbolize the coming of the black... Oh, so they're putting the pig on a bike to symbolize the coming of the black horseman of the apocalypse and the eternal battle between Horus and Set, both depict having satanic rituals. Plaintiff has repeatedly been denied the right to bring Chief Wiggum to places of public accommodation. The only reason that defendants treat a pig such as Chief Wiggum differently than other essays, which must essay, which must mean a support animal, and ESAs, which I take it means emotional support animals, like quote-unquote miniature horses or cats or ferrets, is because of the stigma that pigs are dirty or evil. Specifically, Mail says he was ridiculed off of a public beach, even though Chicago allows dog owners a quote-unquote discriminatory entitlement. Well, dogs can go in Lake Michigan on those beaches, Chief Wiggum cannot. He is not even allowed to be on the beach or designated bathing areas. Similar episodes occurred in Millennium Park, where the quote-unquote, where quote-unquote the bean is located in Grant Park. I have no idea what quote-unquote the bean is. He says there's no reason to kick the pig off the beach because of the quote-unquote present, maybe uh, quote-unquote is the drinking game word of the week, presence of one pig in the water certainly does not change the water suitability for humans or dogs. Mel also tried to obtain a quote-unquote drink-up dog-friendly area tag for his animal, but because it's not literally a dog, he couldn't obtain the proper permit. He's also been kicked out of Six Flags Great, I'm just picturing a Satanist with his uh, pet boar at Six Flags, like on a roller coaster or something. Six Flags Great America theme park because while the park allows for emotional support animals, Borfamet didn't qualify under their terms. Ditto with Lyft and Uber in various stores and restaurants. Mel says Borfamet is a quote-unquote, there you go, service animal under the Americans with Disabilities Act, meeting all the requirements. He should be treated, Mel says, like a miniature horse. The Department of Justice, however, says only dogs can be service animals. That's too restrictive for Mel. And because he also has religious reasons for keeping the pig around, it would be burdensome to require him to get another animal for the purposes of the ADA. Will any of these lawsuits go anywhere? I don't know, but these lawsuits show the slippery slope of religious accommodation. And I was almost going to say, okay, that's enough for this article, but there's really only two very small paragraphs left. When religious beliefs are given special privilege in the legal system, like when a Christian baker can refuse to serve as same-sex couples because of doing so would violate his conscience, the courts can't write someone off just because his beliefs are weird. The claims must be investigated on their merits, provided male has legal standing. It's always important to remember that religious freedom laws don't, can't, only apply to Christians. 
And so I guess my take would be, and honestly, I don't know the ins and outs of all the laws regarding emotional support animals, you know, both on a federal and state level. I know somewhere in there towards the end, it said something about how according to one body, uh, only dogs can be considered emotional support animals. But I know in other cases, there's a variety of animals that can. So I guess I think the fair thing would be that... Uh, if you can prove that a pig is no more of a health risk or any more unsanitary than, say, a dog or another kind of emotional support animal, then a pig should be able to qualify as one as well. And I probably don't have to explain this to my regular listeners. I don't know if this guy's with the Satanic Temple... But the whole thing with the lawsuits makes me think that he very well may be. Uh, the Satanic Temple, like uh, the late Anton's and or LeVay's Church of Satan, is a non-theistic Satanist organization. Meaning that they don't believe in a literal Satan. Um, they see Satan as a kind of symbol. Uh, but they still embrace, uh, you know, ritual and symbolism and all that stuff. And the Satanic Temple specifically is pretty much like a, a secular, humanist, uh, atheist kind of organization. And a lot of these lawsuits are meant to kind of function as kind of reminders of the importance of religious equality and of the importance of the separation of church and state. But with that being said, uh, I'll probably call this episode a wrap. Thank you, everyone, for listening. You guys know the drill. Please like the Facebook page. I think we're almost up to 190 likes. You can follow the show on Twitter. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash theweekendout. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, supporting the show for as little as 99 cents a month, which gives you access to the not-so-secret show, my short story readings, and whatever else I put up there. Uh, all right. Thanks, brothers and sisters. And until next week.